Praise you, Father. Praise you, Lord. God, what a blessing we are, given every day to breathe, Lord. But not just to breathe, but every day we get an opportunity to breathe, existing, living in a realm of being the children of God, being your sons and daughters. Lord, being able to have the comfort, the rest, the security that we are in Christ. Lord, more than a security for this life, but what a security for this life. More than a security when pains and age catch up to us. Father, when struggles and sufferings of different types come into our experience, into this, that we have Jesus Christ as the eternal security to us. But Lord, beyond this breath, beyond these bodies, Lord, we have a security in You, Father. This pay, com- compares to none. And Father, we, have only, we only have half the truth told to us. Lord, there's still yet beyond the veil of life to see the fullness of the God we live for, the God who's given us life and breath, where life exists from, the source of life, and yet to come into that source and fullness. So Lord, today I'm going to pray, Father, that through this time, that You would do a miracle. That God, that You would lead us in heavenly places in our existence here today. Father, that You would encourage today a new light, a new vigor, a new love for prayer on the basis of sometimes truths that God get away from us. Lord, and let this truth sink down into our life. And Father, I love the truth that God, that an individual saint, one child of God, has been given a promise. And you said, if we, if just one of us had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, we would command that mountain to be moved into the sea and it would obey us. How much more, Father, if just a handful of us in this room today, experience that power of the faith of a grain of mustard seed. And Lord, that faith is not faith itself. That faith is profoundly found in the God who cannot fail. You are the object of our faith. And Lord, we want more and more to move beyond the adolescence, the infancy of just finite thinking and pray that You would give us divine revelation to help equip us and move us beyond the veil of our own finite bodies, and help us live in the heavenly realms. Lord, You said in Your Word that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have no right from that vantage point to serve on an earthly realm. Lord Jesus, I thank You as You increase this in our life. God, I pray for the anointing and the inspiration today and the divine empowerment to be able to speak, Father, as only you could give a man the power to do so. And help us, Lord, move forward in the supernatural provision that you've given to us. And see, Father, everything that you deemed for this church and your will for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The raw power of persistent prayer. Now, we're still continuing. I guess you can call it a series on Teach us to pray. So we're still in Luke chapter 11. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, that would bless me. And and anytime you want to shout a a praise or shout an amen, you got my permission. You got my permission. Um, If you need me to slow down a little bit, I will. But if you're taking notes, I think we'll be able to keep those up there long enough for you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, this was a unique sermon for me. Because as I was sharing with my wife the other night, I had pages, about five different pages of notes that I'd handwritten and I had to put it all together and how I was going to make it happen. Believe me, I've condensed it down to what I've got here. But I was trying to figure out how am I going to preach on this. And, um, and really at the heart of it was something I think that God was giving me. And so I want to be able to give that to you today. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 9. Let's look at these verses. Um, Let's read. So I say to you, ask, 
Wait a second. That's not what the verses I was looking for. Um, five through nine. He said, so one more time, Luke chapter 11, five through nine. That way I'm not adding confusion to life here. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it will be open to you. You can turn me down just a little bit. I don't know if it's just kind of a... Are you guys... Is it sound good to you? If you like... Okay, you're good. Okay, we're good then. Opportun, uh, importunity. Jesus uses this word, importunity. Well, our translation of the Bible uses the word importunity. So when in this story, we have this thing that Jesus is conveying. And remember, Jesus said his disciples had asked him, teach us to pray in the first early verses of chapter 11. And then Jesus tells him, pray our Father which art in heaven. I'm not going to finish it. I think you guys know that probably by heart. And then after Jesus ends this, this verse, in the end of verse 4, He says, but deliver us from, evil for, uh, from the evil one. He goes into this story. And uh, the word importunity is what stands out to me in this. So I want you to look at, that word importunity. Importunity occurs only, so if you look in your Bible, uh, you search these words, do a word search for importunity, only is found in Luke chapter 11, verse 8. There's a lot of words that aren't found very often, but scarcely do we find them only once in the Bible. Um, where it is the rendering of anayada, I'm trying to say it right, Anayada, um, the Greek word implies an element of impudent insistence rising to the point of shamelessness, which the word of God, importunity, fails to express. So the translators decided to use the word importunity, but there's something missing in our English understanding of the word importunity, and so it doesn't quite get there, but it does express the meaning. Um, and thus weakening the argument of the parable, which is that by if, if by shameless insistence a favor may be won, even from one unwilling and ungracious, still more surely will God answer the earnest prayer of His people. God's willingness to give exceeds our ability to ask. And I like this last thought here is that the parable teaches in a way of contrast, not in a way of parallel. So, for instance, as you continue on down the chapter, you'll find that he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things or the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So he uses this contrast because I think in some ways we need a contrast to realize on a human finite level, we accept these terms and we believe them to be so. How much more when you begin to approach God in His divinity? So the problem is, is that we hardly can escape from the finiteness of the human brain and get stuck in kind of our way of seeing things. But I think it's a very powerful way to illustrate a truth by using contrast. So in a sense, importunity has a negative connotation to it, but I think I'm going to drive this home here in a minute. I think I can drive this home for you. Did I get an amen? amen. Good. The earnestness and fervency... Oh, sorry. So... Anayada speaks, when I thought about this, this is just me trying to take some time thinking about when we're talking about impudent, shameless insistence. So impudent. Uh, one commentator said that it's like as if he had to wake up all the neighbors. Um, he created quite a, uh, a bustle and caused, a, and at midnight at that, like he's just, he's just creating this... Um, frustration to the guy that's on the other side of it. 
And he's doing it to such a display that I think you might say that he rises and he says not because he's a friend. So how many of you know that as a friend, we'll go to great lengths to be there for somebody? And I'm not sure exactly if friend is the best translation there, but the idea is, is that he's going to somebody and most of us will have an outreach of compassion even at midnight. But to some level, it, it drops off with men. With you and me, we, we quit at some point. If you grieve me or I don't feel I feel inconvenienced enough, I'm not going to be there at my, at my inconvenience or what feels like you're entitled. And so we begin to make judgment calls on who we're going to help and who we're not going to help. And Jesus, I think, in this story, He doesn't elevate that, but we can imagine that being here within the context of these verses. But also, to another level, we can rise with such disgusting persistence that even somebody who doesn't want to be there to aid you is inconvenienced terribly by your persistence is willing, if you go far enough, to do something. And I was told somebody, and this is for married couples, but I was told by somebody, it's wise, on your, and he said this is what they used to do on their date night. They said when you have things that you need to discuss that, you, that can be uh, provoke an irritation between the two of you, to go on your date night and discuss those in, in a public setting. Not so that everybody can hear you, so that it will keep you from elevating something in private with your spouse that you wouldn't do if you were in front of other people. And so, this kind of illustrates this idea that this is like, it doesn't matter what, I don't give a care if I wake up your neighbors, I'm going to do this. And I actually had a situation with somebody, uh, I'm not going to get names or even what the relationship was, but was this kind of person. It, it, he provoked me, there was, he provoked me that I quit even answering. Now, I'm not the guy that will quit answering your phone call. I'm not the guy that will normally just block you out. Not normally, unless I have to for some reason. But he became so grievous that I blocked him out. And I, wouldn't, I still to this day, I won't. And not because I, um, I have unforgiveness. I just can't see wisely how I can listen to somebody belittle me constantly when I intend to help him, to be there for him, and then... Turn on me as if I'm the cause of his own problem. Right? But there's a point in which somebody can be so belligerent that you're like, you know what? At my own inconvenience, it's more troublesome to me to have to deal with you on this level. I'll just give you what you want so that I, even though I don't want to, I'll do it anyway. And that's what Jesus is saying. So... I don't see Jesus saying when at the next few verses, I don't see the context meaning that Jesus is saying, be impudent and insistent when you're talking to God. But what Jesus is using this contrast of why would you not think this, into, and he's taking this into consideration when you approach God, Remember something that vastly is different about God than it is with any other relationship. And how profoundly willing and agreeable He is to answer your prayers. How much He wants to, how much He's invested in the very things that individually, like just look over you as individuals and think about just by yourself, not as a church right now, as a moment, just by yourself, how invested God is in just answering your prayers. How powerful is that? So there's no need, in a sense, there's no need to rise with importunity. But yet, all over the Bible we find there's this kind of fervency and earnestness that gets pressed into our praying. So let me back up just a little bit. Aniada speaks of persistence and fervency. That's what I see but I see an ungodly persistence and fervency in a sense. And Jesus is saying basically you can get what you want by being, having an ungodly persistence and fervency. What about getting what you're praying for when you have persistence and fervency in a godly way? So persistence in this sense is the unwillingness to give up. I'm going to keep on banging at your door. I'm going to keep on fighting to get what I want. 
I'm not leaving here until you give me what I want. Fervency, the intensity of desire without humility, at least in this sense. I am so fervent, but there's no humility in this whatsoever. I have no regard for you and what your struggle is in life. I'm going to get what I want. Anayada includes the idea of the need to beg for out of desperation. To be impudent and shameless in a worldly sense is offensive and sinful. It bears a strong resemblance of entitlement and self-centeredness. Some people pray like that. Some people come. And I think Jesus, when the disciples are asking him, teach us to pray, Jesus is like, if you look at the world around you, there's many who are talking to God. There are many who are praying to God. But they pray with this kind of impudent insistence out of this self, selfishness and self-centeredness and entitlement that God could not justly give them what they pray for and it not be an incredible evil that would result from it. So there's a great number of people that feel like God owes them because they're suffering and He has the riches and the power to be able to give to them what they need or want in life. I'm suffering right now. You're the great King and the omnipotent God who has the power to be able to relieve me of my sufferings. Why don't you do this? Or we have this other side of it. I prayed today and I didn't get what I wanted. And I prayed yesterday and I prayed for so much time. And yet for some reason, God doesn't care about me. And we have, and we all struggle with these at different levels and times. because, But in a sense, we have to deal with, and Jesus does deal with, in every way, is there an, 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 is there an entitlement and self-centeredness at the heart of your praying? Well, I will give you praise, but really why I want this is for me. Primarily, I want me to be self-satisfied. And who couldn't be? If I was healed, I would definitely be happier healed than I will be when I'm in misery and pain, right? But at the heart of it, even in pain, is somebody... It, really at the level of we're trying to become, we're trying to get God to feed us and make give us as if we were the ones that charted the course of our own life. So this impudent kind of offensiveness stands within the world. And yet, he says, you can do this with men and still find a way to get what you want. In other words, be completely self-centered and find a way to get what you want. But I think Jesus at the heart of what he's trying to say is, is there's no need for that. There's never going to be a need in the will of God, in the ways of the Lord, for you to have to approach God on that level. Let's dive into that. In James chapter 5, let's look at James chapter 5. This is going to be very central to this whole thing. James chapter 5. Just give me a, an amen when you get there. James chapter 5. I love that. Turning pages, looking down, reading the Word of God. This is perfect. Okay, we got our first amen. Any more amens out there? You got John chapter 5? James chapter 5. Sorry. I like John too. He's good. James chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now catch this part. The effective or effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with the nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Notice this word earnestly. Notice the word fervently. So we see a spiritual fervent. We see, in a sense, a spiritual aniada. Where there's an aniada in a spiritual way that suits the heart and mind of God. And I think that's the second idea behind what Jesus is sharing. But when you see this Anaida, now this word is not here invested in either fervency or in earnestness, but is similarly tied to those words. 
But what we see different in this is that we have it coupled together with what I believe, what Jesus is promoting to his disciples in James chapter 4, verse 6. So just walk back a block and look down a few more houses and you'll find it in chapter 4, verse 6. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So our urgent believing, our fervent praying comes with this humility invested in it. And this is where Jesus gets involved. And Jesus is so much a dynamic part of what um, we've been just reading is because of. So go back to um, Luke chapter 11. I just wanted to get those verses in your minds before we go any further. Luke chapter 11. Go back there. Because we're going to look at a few more verses because after Jesus gives this, this story, then He starts to qualify what prayer to Him looks like. So let's look in verse 9. So I say unto you, well, let's let me wait for you to get there. Luke chapter 11. I get love and preaching so much that I forget that it takes a little bit of time to read, get to the place in our Bibles. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Isn't that a powerful promise? I hold on to that all the time. When I'm praying, Lord, you said, this is what you said, and I qualify it, you said, because I understand that you're faithful. I believe that, uh, you're, that there isn't anything on your end that I have to worry about as not being faithful. And these verses show me where you are in this. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. Isn't that wonderful? And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Just capture the certainty within that promise. The guarantee, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread, this is where he's getting to it. Remember, he's talking about a friend previously. But now we're talking about a different relationship. If a son asks bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? I wonder what the thought pattern was behind that. I mean, I couldn't think of a lot of things. A scorpion and an egg so vastly different from one another, right? And I think in a sense he's like saying, if he's asking for one thing, he's certainly not only going to grant it, but he's going to grant something that's within the frame of, framework of. If you then, verse 13, then being evil know how to give good gifts. There's that comparison, not parallel. Good gifts for your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus is trying to align His disciples with an understanding of this is not about prayer to start with. This is about a perception of God that it starts with. How do you see God? Is He just a genie in the sky and whatever I want, some special magical thing to happen in my life, I just rub this prayer genie and get what I want? Or is He some kind of a difficult, uh, tyrannic authority that I've got, to, I've got to work my way in by works and special deeds and merit His favor by getting in alignment with Him? And so essentially, Jesus is not talking about all the possibilities out there. But he's narrowing it down to this registry and this thinking of the way that God is that would defeat every single one of them if you capture the truth here. No matter what the devil throws at you, no matter what you face in life, no matter where you are, no matter what season you're in, if you remember this, this will be your path to victory. Now that's awesome. That's awesome. Now I'm ready to preach. The purpose of fervency and persistence in prayer is advancing in the direction of. You've got to catch this. 
So I had to ask myself the question. I stepped back as a part of my time before I really got into the sermon because I wanted to think of why would God have us in a time, because persistency means that it doesn't happen the first time. And maybe that it doesn't happen the second time or the third time. It wasn't too long ago I preached about Elijah and how he laid over him and he continued to do so until he saw the miracle. Think of Abraham in his persistency with God and a hundred years, God giving this promise way back here and advancing through time. Why didn't God give him? What's the real benefit of a promise that has to wait till I'm almost dead? Why? Because you didn't think of what's in the middle between the, the, the effect of the promise and this. And I'm going to tell you something. God's goal is what happens from here to there. You know, we were praying this morning and it was just such a powerful thought. But Jesus waited four days before He took care of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. And the sisters say to Jesus, He's been dead four days. Lord, if You had been here, my brother had not died. And Jesus is like, we got a problem here. we got a problem. I am the resurrection and the life. Why don't you see that? How many of us have been sitting in church, educated over the Word of God, and we still haven't, set, we haven't stepped foot into what Jesus really is all about? How many of us have been in here in a church for any amount of time, and Jesus does His first really powerful miracle, and we're kind of like the disciples who are like, what manner of man is this? You know, Jesus is yet to do some things in your life and in my life that's going to be so over the top that when He does it, we're going to feel like we never really knew Him. I mean, we're talking about omnipotence, and what I mean by that is, is that the moment God does something glorious in your life, the next time he does something glorious, it always peaks and trumps the first thing. It's not necessarily that the miracle trumped the first thing, but it just shows the glory of God elevated on another plane. So we get more and more of the picture of God, and what we have in this life is this sense of our finiteness to struggle to find this infiniteness to God. And so no matter how far you go, no matter how long you live, you're still yet to find how much more infinite God is. So we're always in advancing in a direction of, and this is going to contrast what I think we often come to the struggle of. See, we got to understand something. Grace works in fertile hearts. How many of you have been with somebody and you wanted to do good for them, but there's this wall, pride, I can do it myself, or whatever, right? And, and you can't do anything for them, and it won't end in any good. I give you money and you go and this. Sinful pursuit of life just gets more sinful the more I help you. And we, we quit giving, not because we have no heart to give, or we don't want to give, or we'd wish that we could give more, because it won't profit you a bit. And we lose the ability and the traction to do so. So here we are, we're at grace works in fertile hearts. God's wanting to pour out grace, but there's not that fertility in heart to be able to receive it well. The Holy Spirit works to cultivate heart longing. That's where it hit for me. The persistence, the time from one to the next is so that God could work inside of me this longing. How many of you have been thirsty? I need a show of hands. I'm just, I'm afraid. Oh, good, good. We've been thirsty. There's a few I didn't see hands, but I think it's true. How many of you got more thirsty. See, this is the problem and when we come to Jesus. Why do we want immediate answers? Because we're not ready for God to create a thirst in us for the ultimate answer. Jesus said, He that hungers and thirsts for righteousness... Did you ever think about what Abraham's story was over that space of time? You know, this thought came to me as I was thinking about 
the story of Abraham again while we were praying. A lot of things happen when you're praying. And I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart this thought, this question of why the knife? Why the knife? He brings his son to promise that he finally gets and he leads him up to this altar in this place where he's supposed to kill him. I waited all this time for what you gave to me. I don't get it. Now I got to take the knife. And when he has the knife, and it's not until he has the knife, and I remember a brother said something, it was so powerful. He's talking about when God's in your life working to get you to the place to do His will, and you're not sure if this is His will or not. And he made this statement. God says, God has you take a knife to it, and if it comes up bloody, it wasn't of God. (laughs) Oh, that's a powerful statement. Are you ready to put it to death? And if it's God's plan for your life, you've got to be ready to do so. And at the end, this is what God said to Abraham. Now I know that you won't withhold anything from me. That's an awesome point when we can get there. Because there's nothing God's going to give in miracles or in blessings or outpourings in your life that really do any good until it's all His. It belongs to Him. And I think that the integrity and the heart of these verses is exactly what Jesus was trying to get across to His disciples. You're going to have to get to the place where it's all mine. So grace works in this way. And then here's the Scripture for it, because I want you to know, I'm doing this on a scriptural basis. Psalm 42.1, it says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. I think you might have to move to that verse, Isaac. Yep. Or maybe you, no, you're there. Okay, I think. Nope, you're not there yet. No, you are. No, you're not. Give me, give me to that verse. Where's the verse? Is it there? Is it in the middle? How does ongoing toward... Oh, yeah, it's there. Okay, good. See, sometimes people have to direct me too. Good. How does heart longing move us toward the promises of God? The depth of your inner desire for spiritual life is, need, is a needed condition for God to reveal His will. It's just that simple. It's needed to reveal His will. I was thinking about a verse, and it's going to come up in another sermon, but I'm going to give it to you now. Jesus talks about unless the seed die and go into the ground, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And this was the thought that hit me, was that it wasn't, the seed doesn't terminate, it doesn't cease to exist, it takes on a whole new form. So Jesus is actually putting to death in us what's of us, so that he can bring to life what's of him. And and here's my thing. When you pray, God's doing it. He's doing it. Lord, I'm struggling with that. He's doing it because there's a death thing happening in that process. I'm having a hard time because I want to see something happen. He's doing it. He's doing it. He's working it. But you're not seeing it, right? Or maybe you are. And then you're starting to capture, oh Lord, oh dear Jesus. Man, there's so much of me in your way. Thank you, Jesus, for putting me through this. Thank you, Lord. There's a divine piece to this that I'm going to get. I'm I'm capturing it. I'm getting it, Lord. Let's move forward. The revelation. So here's another reason why. Why does he get? He put. uh, How does heart longing move us toward the promises of God? It brings about revelation and relationship that come out of that hunger for God. Why does God move us toward this longing? Because hunger for God in return stirs spiritual anayada in us. See, this is the thing of like, when you've been, in a sense, spiritually birthing a promise. Now, you're not making it happen. God is. But you've been holding on and you've been holding on and you're seeking the Lord and you're letting go of self while you're holding on. And you're going to receive the miracle in due time. 
For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. That's, that's the friend coming to a friend and how much more my Father in Heaven and said, Lord, I've got a spiritual importunity in my life. I'm hungry for the will of God. And I'm looking forward to the promise. The heart of God is ripe. So lastly, the heart of God is ripe to give. Just remember that. The first day you started praying, even before the day you started praying, the moment you... No, I'm going to go further than that. Before you even desired it, when it was the furthest thing from your mind, God already had it in His heart. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. And then the desire came and God already had it in His heart. And you started praying and God had it in His heart. It was all about this. And so the heart of God is ripe to give and the heart of man must be fertile to receive. How many of you are getting ready to do some gardening this year? Right? Or how many of you would like to do some gardening this year? How many of you had to leave last year's garden with all of its weeds and all that just left out and just start throwing the seed in it? Don't expect God to do it either. Don't expect God to do it either. You got things of self that are growing up in your life and it's just self, 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 all about me, me, me. And Jesus is like, well, I'm not ready to sow that seed yet. We're going to give you that promise, but we're going to pull up some weeds out of your life. Because you got some self inside of you, stirred to all kinds of things, right? And, and what a beautiful thing that God does. He doesn't just come in there and nag on us and yell at us and pour in his complaints about us. He just goes in and it's like weeds come up by the gracious power of God at work. Thank you, Jesus, for holy conviction. Baptize me with more of it. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, let's go back there. God says, the heart of God is ripe. So I say to you, ask. He wouldn't say that if he wasn't ripe to do it. And then the heart of man must be fertile and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Look at the certainty there. But Lord, the weeds keep me from having it. And actually, if you want to think about it, the weeds are actually keeping you from something else. And it's more about trusting Him. How come I'm struggling in my faith life? Because the weeds are in the middle of that. But the beauty of it is, is God isn't having you pull up the weeds. He's pulling them. Now you're a part of the whole thing, but it's the groundwork. I'm the groundwork. He does it. I wouldn't pull a weed out of my life. I don't ever get out from under the power of selfishness, except that Jesus does some revealing and He does some inner work. And then, I, and then there's this yielding thing that happens there, right? So God doesn't always answer immediately because persistence is our heart's growth in faith. See, the, now, how do I want to demonstrate that? I want to demonstrate that is because if you believed that God was going to do it from the beginning, and you believed that only His will was the only thing that mattered anyway, then time doesn't stop that, does it? I've, I've had a few young couples in my life that said it, it was like there was this urgency. There was this fear of, really is what it was, this fear of they would find somebody else down the path of life. And I remember saying, hey, if love is there from the beginning, it'll be there at the end too. And so it is, is with faith in us. The moment your heart really trusts in Jesus, time doesn't diminish that. Unless you're carnal. <laughs> right? Jesus is like to the disciples. He said there was, a, there was a people who were there following Him and He said, now eat of My flesh and drink of My blood. And many departed because the seed wasn't already alive in their heart. There wasn't faith in Jesus from the beginning. There was a different reason for following the Lord. So a lack of longevity in our faith and prayer speaks for the immaturity of our understanding. So I would say this, it's not that we don't have faith, it's just that we don't have longevity in our faith. And God is doing a maturing work in us. He's doing a growing thing in us. He's not going to just leave you as just the first babe Christian you started with. He's going to make you a man and woman of God over the next 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. 
It's always going to get better and better. That's God's plan. So this is a maturing thing in the process. That's why there's, there's perseverance. So we lack maturity in our understanding of the character and the ways of God. Biblical boldness is not based on ignorance. So I'm going to say this. God is, why does God not immediately, or why doesn't God always answer immediately? And that is because biblical boldness is not based on arrogance. Therefore, it gathers strength and certainty from our personal experience in the sufficiency of God. Where have you learned his sufficiency? I didn't learn his sufficiency just when the food ended on the table. I learned his sufficiency along the pathway that brought me to that point too. Because there was a wrestling match that happened. Oh dear God, my job and I don't have, you know, I don't have what I want or the money that I need at the time. The struggle, I'm going through something similar right now. And I felt like the Holy Spirit is like reminding me in the moments. It's like this, this quickening of my heart of when the anxiety stirs. There's a quickening in my heart when the anxiety stirs. Of, are you really going to settle there? Biblical boldness is not based on that ignorance. So we gather strength. We continue to get more strength as we have a personal experience in the sufficiency of God. Regeneration is not tied. So this new life that God brought us in is not tied to self-serving ends. Therefore, the principles by which we operate. So why do we come to God boldly? How can we do this with persistence and uh, earnestness is because when we do, we do not violate the principles by which we, uh, by which this regeneration at work is uh, is an operation in our life. So we don't violate the integrity of God when we pray with earnestness. We don't violate it. God can do things in our life and it work in every direction. I love John's what he shared with us this morning is that what one person did or a handful of us did, as a blessing to them, ended up being a blessing for him to give to somebody else. And that's the ways of God. God never gives so it ends on the person it gives to you. God gives so that it continues to be processed from person to person. We need to deal with the insecurities of delayed answers. There's no doubt about it. And I think that's part of what Jesus is dealing with because the disciples... If you think about this, they've lived a, a sense of a past with Jesus and they're continuing to move forward into a present with Jesus. Isn't that powerful? So Jesus is going from one to the other. And Jesus knows and he says at one point, he says, there's things that you need to know, but I'm not going to tell you yet because you're not ready for it. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Satan is desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you're strengthened, go and strengthen your brethren. See, Christianity today, an American mentality, we are sometimes the most at fault for it because we can get things at the fingertips. You don't even have to have the money because you can go get the debt and you can get what you want. And we come to Jesus the same way. But there is something when we talk about maturity that doesn't happen in a moment. It happens in time. But it happens in time as we progress in relationship with. How many of you know there's a lot of people that didn't get anywhere closer to, to uh, maturity? Not because they didn't have plenty of time. It's because they never learned the lessons in the time. <laughs> they didn't move forward with what they were supposed to learn in it. So we got still very, um, we got some 50-year-old, 40-year-old guys and 30-year-old boys, still boys and young girls at that. Because of it. So immaturity happens as we yield ourselves to you. So delay is not rejection. Just remember that. There is never a time when delay biblically is rejection. Now there are times when you may be asking something not according to the will of God. And God says, I'm not giving that to you. But you wouldn't want him to do it any other way anyway. When we think of delay as rejection, here's a few things that we need to keep in mind. So when we get to that place, we succumb to subtle, the subtle evasiveness of disappointment. Now, we've all been on that side of it is where we struggle with the feelings of disappointment. And when I feel disappointed, um, and I've kind of watched this in others too, the disappointment 
leads oftentimes to, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Disrespectfulness or impudent, persistence, insistence. That sounds more like what Jesus is talking about. That self-centeredness. When I'm disappointed, I want it now. I want you to do it for me now. And that's not just with God. That's with people. Our relationships with people are like that on a normal basis oftentimes. And so we look at people who are there to help us as be more uh, a nuisance. And so we succumb, we succumb to the evasiveness of that disappointment. Also, if we think of delay as rejection, we can find ourselves giving in to anxiety that develops from imagined, not actual or unresolved problems. See, in our heads, we got a lot of things spinning. And I kind of know this. I've had some struggles with it in the past, but my head gets to spinning. And I'll be thinking about this and that and that. And one thing I realized about when your head is spinning, none of what's going on in the middle of your head is really the problem, is it? It's how your head thinks of it. And like I'm spinning it off. I'm like, I can't even go do that right now. And it doesn't even matter right now, but yet I'm thinking about it and building on the anxieties that come along with it. If we think of delay as rejection, we eventually abandon hope and faith in God and His promises because time feels like a dimmer switch. Now, I really want to get into that just a little bit. See, that's the difference is, is that persistence, oftentimes, and I remember this when my wife and I, we had been praying for our oldest son, and we didn't have a baby, and we kept praying promises, we kept praying the Word, we kept believing different places in the Bible, and it wasn't happening. It was so hard. It was so difficult in that. And what I noticed was this, and, and this is what's changed in me. When that was happening, every successive time felt like it was a further confirmation of denial. And it got discouraging. Really discouraging. You know, let's let's just talk about it for a second. You know, because this is this is what we deal with. And you know, every successive miscarriage leading up to six of them. Oh Lord, we know you're not going to do this. And you know, the only thing I was holding on to is maybe there's something. But really, at heart, it felt like it's just the deepening impression that you're rejecting every time I ask. I'm not good enough. I got to motivate myself on being a better man. I got to be a man of more prayer. I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. And there's this this factor that comes into that. The more you really think you got to do, the less of you that's dying. So I got to see a very vivid view of how God does this precision work like a surgeon that's cutting very specifically to avoid certain areas. And God is getting into the area of where really He's working between the measure of your human finite disappointment and His will that's got to work in getting you past that. Oh my goodness. And then make it so that He can put something else inside of you, right? That He can give birth to a prom. Man, this is good. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. I forgot where I was at. Okay, so the anxiety that develops and the imagined problems. And so I remember feeling like this was like a dimmer switch. Every time I kept praying, it kept getting, and that's where my heart was going. And Jesus is like, if you want to look at it as a dimmer switch, the first time you started praying, the light was just getting, you're just getting closer. If this dying element is coming out of it. The more abandoned you are of you and the more of me you're holding on to, it's just getting you closer. See, we got to look at this. This is a progressive growth in something more than just for what we're asking God for. Our fear. So here's, here's a, I think, a third and fourth one here. When we think of delay as rejection, our fear of personal misery tends to envision faith as risking it on God, 
proposing the possibility of a painful outcome. You notice Jesus' words never give you the sense or the feeling that this is going to end bad. He never does that. So when we're looking at it from the, the idea that, oh, Jesus said this, but I actually look at it as more like the delay is the rejection, we reverse that process. So this, this, this fear of misery, personal misery, this thought of if I go so far and it doesn't happen, then what's going to happen at the end of that road? Because I've invested so much hope and desire in something, and I'm not getting what I desired. And so if this ends, of, of it not happening, you know, however you want to look at your pressure and moving toward God, the natural human element behind that is, I'm risking it all on You, Lord. Do not let me down. So wrong in the way we pray. So wrong. Because Jesus never fits that criteria. Never once. How many of you are getting something out of this? We miss the truth. And lastly, we miss the truth that persistent prayer is how we discover the will of God. It's an ever-brightening light. So lastly, I want to mention this thought. is Because now this is what it is. It's all about the work of grace in our life. Because the work of grace is to make our hearts fertile. What do I mean by that? If we just take what I've been saying in its context, what I mean by that fertile heart is I'm not prone to look at you as somebody who's going to let me down. I've learned to trust wholly in you, and I'm my let me down. And I've let go of that. So I've become fertile ground for which you can. Now, at any moment, whenever you choose, Lord, your timing is perfect here. You've, you've now, the grace of God is about working this fertility in my heart and to cultivate spiritual longing. There is no need for impudent, shameless insistence or aniada when we pray. There's no need for it. That's why Jesus gave the contrast. There's no need for this. I'm agreeable to you. I want what you want more than you want it for you. Remember that. So that when you're on the pathway before that happens, you will learn to love me, trust me, and fully be secured in me all the way there. Abraham, fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. So it's kind of like Abraham had his beginnings. Oh, not Ishmael. But did he repeat another Ishmael? There must have been this place of growth in his life. And then he has this place of maturity with God. And then God gives him a promise. Now, what I don't want to do is confuse my audience and anybody who would hear this. I don't want to confuse you to think that the goal is the thing you're praying for. That's where we. That's the other place. We miss it. So Jesus is actually connecting with him with something bigger than that. So what is Jesus teaching here? Number one, the miracle or answer to prayer is always secondary. The depth that you come to know God is primary. Mm. Oh, Jesus. I feel that one. It's primary. What Jesus' is teaching is that it starts, what starts with stress ends in peace and in His praise. Jesus is teaching that God cultivates joy through persistence, not this feeling of rejection. Joy. <laughs> That's my phone reminding me to drink some water here. Um... If I could tell you, there's oftentimes the reason why my children trusted me, and I'm sure you guys have had similar experiences, the reason why, when I said that I would do something, 
is they believed that there was a measure of confidence that I wouldn't fail them. Now, there's a good reason for, as fathers and mothers, that things happen in life where we can't fulfill the promises that we thought we were going to be able to make. But can I tell you today, if I can help you in your prayer life, if I can help you get closer to God, this is what I want to tell you. With absolute certainty, there's not a possibility of failure. There's not even a chance that God could fail you. I want to start you on your journey today, on your season that you're going through. I want to start you afresh. I want to give you a reset switch. Just remember right now that He will never fail you. And if you can have that certainty, then isn't it true that all along that journey, that same reality is there? It's always there. And God is just that faithful because if He wasn't, there is nothing else we could stand on. There's nothing. Prayer is not about weathering the storm. I'm going to finish this thought. Prayer is not about weathering the storm, but rising above the storm. Oh, I love that. You've got to understand that. See, and, and what am I doing here today? As I, I, I started thinking about the inspiration of what is God at heart trying to say to us, He says, I have... I have here in your congregation, James, I have a good number of people who love me. And I have out of those people, I have people who struggle just like you do. But I want you to tell them something. I want you to let them know. Because they, we all have it in our heads, but I want you to secure if you can. I want, And I've been praying all week long. I want God to secure because I think that some of us have been praying, feeling like we're losing ground. And it's time for the Lord to show you you haven't been losing ground, you've been gaining ground. You're moving forward in the call of God. And why is the Lord doing that? Because Jesus is doing something special in this congregation. Oh, He's doing some amazing, wonderful things. And I realize something. The more profoundly I can pray, not feeling that delay is rejection. And that just gives me this moving forward one after another. And this is what I felt. If I can share this, uh, what was it, Thursday or Friday, that Lee and I, we were praying together here in this place. And while we were praying, I was getting a revelation right out of the very sermon I was going to be given. And this is what I felt that the Lord has told me for me for a long time. He says, I'm, I'm causing you the persistence, the fervency, the keeping going forward, the feeling like, man, why does it feel like I'm on the cusp of something, but I'm not there yet? But I feel like every time I pray, and why do I want to pray more? Lord, what is going on here? Why in, in June do I feel this desire to take a retreat just for prayer and fasting? Why am I, why, what's going on inside of me? And I feel like the Lord is like, because I am trying to elevate the reality that if you won't get discouraged on the idea of delay, you're about to move forward into something big. And I'm trying to tell that to your congregation too. I want them to pray without discouragement. That's how they're going to move with you. They're going to move with you and what I'm putting on your heart. And I don't know. I, I don't know what God's doing, but there's oftentimes I feel like this. It's not the sermons that are preached. It's the anointing that happens. And it may be before you ever even, before I stand up, before we even make it to those doors. Somehow I feel like the Holy Spirit is going to speak to people without us even talking to them. And they're already going to be delivered from sin. They're going to already be regenerated and walk in those doors in newness of life. And we're just getting closer. So please, don't get discouraged. Don't quit praying. Some of us need to just press in with some fasting and prayer, but not on legalistic terms, but on this, I'm getting it. So for me, a lot of times what it looks like is, man, God just opened up a promise to me. I never saw it like that. Yeah. That's motivating me to stronger belief in Him. Because Jesus said, be it according to your faith. 
So all we're really doing is saying, Lord, would you please grow me in faith? I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Right? So here's how I want to end our time together. I want you to take that time because whether you feel discouraged or not, how many of you would say, I'm at the climax of my prayer life? It couldn't get any better. Right? There's times it feels like that, but you're like, I know there's another place beyond. So I just want to invite you today to take some time with the Lord and ask Him to build into you a persistence, a fervency that we find in the book of James. Lord, let me be that fervent and righteous. Now, what I love about this is if every one of you will do that, of every one of you, Lord, what, whatever I have to, whatever limitations on me, I can still be fervent, right? Whatever's there, if every one of us will do that, imagine what God will do in our midst. Imagine what God, even with the few of us that are here in the moment, imagine what He'll do. So I want to begin to invite you to do that. And let's do that while we're taking communion. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to come up and open up the elements, and I want to serve you communion. Because I just want to see your beautiful, wonderful faces while God's working in your heart to do in you what he's doing in me. Amen? What a beautiful moment we have. So let's turn in our Bibles as I get prepared for this communion time. I'm going to have you turn, turn somewhere besides where we normally do. And that is in Genesis chapter 22. God's good at putting things together, for sure. So, let's look in verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, just Get in the image of Jesus speaking to the God the Father. He said, Here am I, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar in the place, the wood, in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he answered, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God since you have withheld, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Father, thank you today, Lord, that this picture that Abraham, I don't know that he had the completion of the full understanding of what was taking place here. But this would model, this would illustrate the very thing that you would do with your own son, Jesus Christ. As unimaginable as it is on any human level, for such a sacrifice to be made, how much more, Lord? So Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you. Today I pray, Father, that you would work your wonders. Work your wonders in our heart, Lord. We want to pray. We want to be closer to you. We want every moment and every time that we step into your presence to always be the reward of worship, not regret or dismay or a struggle of rejection, but always a reward of worship to you. So, Father, help us examine our hearts today. 
and realign ourselves to the will of God and expect more from you, Jesus, so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna, um, Julia, I'm going to actually have you just take communion with us. And I'm going to have Isaac go ahead and go to the music that's on the on there because I think every one of us should be just able to just focus on communion right now.